Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. I serve here as our Lexington campus pastor, and it's great to be with you. And I'd especially like to welcome any of you who came with a friend today, or maybe some of those of you who heard our ad on the Sports Hub radio station. If you came, glad you're here. And if you haven't caught that ad yet that we've run for the series, we'd encourage you to listen to it right now. Take a listen. Were you dragged to church this holiday season? Did you sit through a bunch of songs and prayers thinking to yourself, people really believe this stuff? Or maybe you're wondering what to do with all your questions and doubts. We all have real honest questions about God, Jesus, the Bible, and history. Come to Grace Chapel and explore these important questions this January. We have locations in Lexington, Wilmington, and Watertown. Details at grace.org. So if you were expecting to hear from someone with a thicker Boston accent, I'm sorry to disappoint. Well, as the spot said, all this month we're in a series called Really? And we're wrestling with honest questions about Jesus and Christianity that many perceive to be off limits to ask in church. And so the question that we'll be exploring today is this, is Jesus really good for the world? This is an especially good question, I think, for a couple reasons here today. First, a newer movement that has received a bit of media attention over the past few years is the Good Without God movement, led by the likes of those such as Harvard's humanist chaplain, Greg Epstein. This humanist movement contends that our world would be better off if religion and figures like Jesus would just go away. While thinkers in this movement make some strong points about some of the very negative impacts that religion and Christianity have had on the world at times, I believe this movement will always have an uphill climb to find consensus as to what's, what it means to be good and who a good person is apart from God and convictions about universal truth. Well, my aim today is not to deconstruct all of this movement's arguments as much as it is to show how good Jesus was, how good he is, and how great he will be one day for the world. And then the second reason I think this is such an important question today for us to grapple with is because this weekend we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. He's one of the great figures in world history whose mission and message were unmistakably good for the world, even though he wasn't a perfect person. But one of the ironic ways that we remember Dr. King is that we forget who the source of this Christian preacher's message was. And that, of course, is Jesus. MLK's approach to nonviolent resistance and belief in the dignity and value of all human beings is at the very heart of Jesus' teachings. So given the Good Without God movement and it being Dr. King's holiday weekend, this is an incredibly important question for us to wrestle with today. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm listening to a preacher, so I can already predict what the answer is going to be, that you think Jesus really is good for the world. And if you're thinking that, you're right. But I challenge you anyways to listen to this message, because the reason that he's good for the world, it might be different than you think. Today, we'll be looking at what Jesus really said and did from the very source himself, and not just what others have said about him. Because a lot of us think that Jesus said things that he actually didn't say and did say things we didn't think he said because we believed the rumors about him. This is kind of what it's like when you play the game telephone. How many played this game here back in the past? Yeah, someone starts out and whispers something in one person's ear and it gets passed from person to person. And then at the end of the whole line, it sometimes can be very different from how it began, either because someone misheard or because someone purposely changed what was said. And I can imagine if we played telephone today, it would go like this. Grace Chapel is a really great church. 
It gets passed from person to person, and it might come down my row. And then at the very end, it says, Pastor Brian is the biggest Red Sox fan in the world. (laughs) He's a Yankees guy, so let's be okay with spreading that rumor, all right? But I'll confess, I was always the guy who changed the message. Last week you heard Pastor Brian say he was always a really good, good kid. I can't always say that about me. In eighth grade alone, I received more than 30 detentions in one year. <laughs> when I became a Christian and then was uh, called to be a pastor and decided to do that when I was in high school, the middle school teachers kind of went from one another and were like, really? <laughs> and I heard that, I said, that's going to make a great sermon series one day. <laughs> really? Now, probably one of the greatest apologetics or reasons to believe in Jesus' existence, if you're a New Brighton, Pennsylvania area middle school teacher, is the fact that this guy is standing on stage and is called Reverend Ripper. That's a reason for you to believe in Jesus. So, <laughs> But I'll just forewarn you, if you hang around Jesus too long, people might start to say, really? About you too. But just as telephone messages get twisted by the 14-year-old Dave Rippers of the world, so the message of Jesus has often turned out to be quite different from how it began. You see, in the first century, this revolutionary statement, Jesus is Lord, is what was said. Not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. And over the years, it's turned into statements like, Jesus is my homeboy, or Jesus hates, fill in the blank. And anytime you see hate like this coupled with Jesus, they cannot ever coexist. This is not right. But today, I'd like for us to go back to the beginning of the telephone line and discover for ourselves what Jesus really said and what he did. And I believe we'll discover that he is not part of the problem, but he is the source of the solution. And not only is he really good for the world, but he believes that you and me and all of us can be really good for the world too. So let's find out firsthand what Jesus said. It might be the best news that you have ever heard. So I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 4. We'll have it up on the screens, starting on verse 12. This is the first sermon that Jesus preaches as Matthew records. So when Jesus heard that John, his cousin, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of the land of, or shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, if we only listen to the voices of the news stories and the reporters of our day, it often feels like there is a despairing shadow cro- cast across our world and lives. It feels like darkness is what's most characteristic of our day. A recent poll I saw showed that 28% of Americans in our country think we are headed in the wrong direction. But against a gloomy backdrop like this, Jesus begins his preaching ministry to a people living in a similar situation to our own. And this message is not one of more darkness, but it is of light breaking through. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, some of you might be thinking, all that Dave was saying had to be good, too good to be true. Repent, 
There it is, that old-sounding church word that evokes notions of judgment and condemnation. Well, if you've heard the word repent being used like that before, then you have a good reason for feeling a little suspicious right now. I don't blame you for that. But given what it means to repent and why Jesus says to repent in this context, I don't think that he's speaking in a condemning way whatsoever, but he's trying to point out the present opportunity that's at hand. See, the word repent simply means to change your direction in life. It means to change the way that you're thinking, change the way you're acting, review your plans for living in light of this remarkable new opportunity. Jesus says repent, not because you're so bad, but because this opportunity is so good. Change the way you're living and acting. And why, what is this thing that they're, that's available that can be so good for them? Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God as it's called in other gospels, is the thing that Jesus talks about the very most in his ministry. It's unlike anything else in our world. So he uses parable after parable, analogy after analogy, to try and help us picture something that we could never conjure up by our own imagination. Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says that the kingdom of heaven is the range of God's effective will. It's where what God wants done is done. Now, this kingdom language is a bit confusing sounding to us because we actually all do have a kingdom. A kingdom is what you genuinely have say over. You have say over your body or your wallet or your purse. And typically what happens in these spaces is what you want to happen. That is your kingdom. Now, God's kingdom is where what he wants done is done. The earth appears to be the only realm in which God permits for his kingdom not to be done, for his will not to be done. But as Jesus announces that the kingdom of the heavens is near, he is initiating a movement where we will want what God wants and eagerly seek after his kingdom to come, not simply into existence, but to be integrated into all the points of our world and our lives where it's presently excluded. And when this happens, the possibilities for good to occur in our world become endless. And Jesus says, this opportunity is near or it's available. No matter who you are, where you come from, or what you've done, this invitation is for you. The kingdom of heaven is near. Get in on this. And Jesus spends the rest of his life in ministry talking about what this is all about. It's the introduction, this phrase, into all that he says and does, and we can get in on it. In some respects, what Jesus is trying to do here is it's like opening a window for us into what his kingdom is like. He's almost trying to say, what you see around you right now with your five senses, this is not all that there is. There's actually a divine world and there's a divine life that's available. Come take a look. This is the greatest opportunity for the highest good in our world to emerge. Come in, take a look and see. Take a look and see. Now, often when we hear things like this, like repent, we think we need to go actually change everything about ourselves first, get everything in order, and then we can come to church, or then we can respond to God's word. But what Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Stop what you're doing and come and see right now. There's no prerequisite courses you need to take. There's not some set of propositional beliefs you first need to ascribe to. No, 
Just stop what you're doing, come and see, and look into what the kingdom of the heavens is like. And so Jesus gathers people who are interested in finding out about what this kingdom of the heavens is all about. And he gives them a powerful glimpse into it as he continues to preach in what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll look at that now, chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. In the beginning, he goes through this section called the Beatitudes, which is just another word that means blessing. And it's exploring who's really well off. The word blessed means the highest type of well-being possible for human beings. So let's look at who's blessed in God's kingdom. Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So just imagine how good of news this would have been, this invitation to the life of the kingdom for those who first heard it. Those who are most hurting, most marginalized, most neglected or ignored or forgotten are considered blessed in the kingdom of heaven. The normal ways of measuring one another and the generally accepted patterns of how we rise to the top in our dog-eat-dog world don't apply here. In God's kingdom, those who are, actually in the kingdom of the world, those who are most oppressed in God's kingdom are blessed. Really, really. And so as Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, he's really inviting us to radically reimagine who really has it all together in our world. It's not necessarily the self-sufficient or the powerful, but those who have become alive to God and to his kingdom who are blessed. Willard writes, the Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told they are better off for being poor or for mourning, or for being persecuted, and so on, or that conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top after the revolution. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God from the heavens is truly available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. So the Beatitudes are not a list of how-tos to be blessed, but a radical declaration of independence from who the world says actually is blessed. This is the most extravagantly good news that was ever heard at that time. 
It's not just good news for what happens to us after we die either. It is good news for this life. It's possible for you to live in a reality like this by stepping into God's kingdom. And the way that you step into his kingdom is by deciding to follow Jesus, which means you want to be a student or apprentice of his, that you want to integrate his way into every way that you think and act. You want to live your life, in other words, the way he would live it if he was you. That's how we step into the kingdom. And when you do this, it won't just be good news for you. It's going to be good news for all the world. The most astounding news the world has ever heard. Over the centuries, there have been many Christians who have chosen to be students or apprentices of Jesus. And when they decided to trust what he said was real, not the ways of this world, they made an amazing difference. Here's just a few example, examples of how the teachings of Jesus, when they're lived out, radically change the world for good. There are countless examples I could use, but let's see specifically how Jesus and his followers have been good for the world as they've lived this life in the kingdom and how they've impacted the areas of care and compassion, of education, and of human rights and dignity. The source for some of the research you're about to hear is from John Ortberg's great book called Who Is This Man? Our men's group is studying it on Wednesday mornings here at Lexington at 6.30. It's a great book. So let's see how Jesus impacts care and compassion. A first century writer named Seneca wrote, we drown children at birth when they are weak or abnormal. In the ancient world, it was permitted for a child to be left to die if the child was the wrong gender. Sociologist Rodney Stark said in that day that for every 1.4 million boys, there were only 1 million girls because over 400,000 girls were left to die. But there was this little group who remembered Jesus saying, let all the little children come to me. And so Christians began to take in these abandoned children and thus people began to leave children not outside the city gates to die anymore, but they would leave them on the doorsteps of Christians. And eventually there would be monasteries where many kids would be dropped off. And this is what formed orphanages in our world to care for these abandoned children. During the first three centuries after Christ, two major outbreaks of disease spread so pervasively that approximately one-third of the population of cities were wiped out. It created such a panic that those who were suffering would be dragged out into the streets to be left for dead. But there was this peculiar group called the church that actually jeopardized their own lives by bringing these sick into their homes. Because they remembered a teaching of Jesus that said, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. In the fourth century, what would evolve into being the first hospital was begun by a follower of Jesus named Benedict. By the 6th century, monastic communities had hospitals attached to them. Anytime you see compassionate organizations like the Red Cross or Habitat for Humanity or International Justice Mission or the Salvation Army or hospitals with names like Good Shepherd, St. Anthony, or St. Jude's, you are seeing the touch and impact of Jesus on our world. The famous 12 Steps program that has been powerfully implemented by Alcoholics Anonymous was created by a Christian collective called the Oxford Group who reclaimed the practices of Jesus for transformation and applied them to recovery from addiction. No Jesus, no 12 steps, 
no AA, no NA, no celebrate recovery. If you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion? Ask yourself that whenever you see an institution that's committed to self-giving for the lowly, that this organization probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Jesus is really good for the world. How about in the area of education? In the Greco-Roman world, education was restricted to boys and elite families, not girls, not slaves. But Jesus said, teach everybody. And so Christians began to do this, and they valued education so much that monastic communities were the ones of, of Jesus' followers, the ones who preserved the most ancient texts of our world, not just the biblical ones, but the pagan classical texts as well. No other institution in Europe did this. And then Christians began creating universities, University of Paris, then Cambridge and Oxford. In fact, Oxford University's motto is the Lord is my light. Harvard University was founded by Christians who wanted to train Puritan pastors. No Jesus, no Harvard. Before the Civil War, 92% of the colleges and universities founded in the U.S. were formed in Jesus' name. In the mid-17th century, right here in Massachusetts, the first law promoting the funding of public education was passed under this name, the Old Deluder Satan Act. This was created by followers of Jesus who believed ignorance was of the devil because God wants everybody to learn. Jesus is really good for the world. How about when it comes to human rights and dignity? Well, the Declaration of Independence states that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, this was not self-evident to the ancient world. So where did this idea come from? Well, Jesus brought from Israel a new way of thinking about the value of every human life. We're all made in God's image. Then Jesus' follower, Paul, wrote a letter to a church in Galatia. And this letter, chapter 3, verse 28, he writes, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill, in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, says this is the first expression of egalitarianism recorded in human literature. Jesus taught even the value of our most hated and feared enemies by calling us to love them and pray for them and even to forgive them. From the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The Princeton University thinker Hannah Arndt writes that the discoverer of the role of forgiveness and the role of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. The most famous speech delivered in the United States during the 20th century was delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King while he was at the mall in Washington, D.C. King was quoting the Bible that justice would roll like waters and righteousness, righteousness like a stream. And he would share his dream of racial equality for all. This dream was not a secular one, but inspired by the teachings of Jesus. And this fight for equality and civil rights continues today. 
It's not a movement that we as a church want to stand off from and just watch from a distance, but it's one we are committed to engaging in. Tomorrow here in Lexington, we are partnering with the town to host a day celebrating Martin Luther King and to talk about racial reconciliation and what partnership can look like right here in this community. We'd be honored to have you join us. And then we're also hosting a night focused on racial reconciliation as part of our Q Commons preview night being held on February 11th at our Grace Chapel Watertown campus beginning at 7 o'clock. We'll be showing Cynthia Parker's Q Talk from the previous Q Commons this fall and be spending the time in roundtable discussions, unpacking some of this content and going deeper in our dialogue on racism and systemic injustice and bridge building and reconciliation. So when it comes to equality and human rights and dignity, Jesus is really good for the world. This Wednesday, I'm flying to Ecuador to join our ministry partners, Bruce and Cherith Ridbeck, for the celebration of a water project's completion that a team here at Grace that I was a part of were, a part, uh, were at two years ago. Just two years ago in this rural community called Achuyai, people to have access to water would go lug water up this hill that was unclean about a kilometer in length at 12,000 feet elevation. Not an easy way to, to live life whatsoever. But over this time, this water project has been completed by the remarkable work of this community. And now, over 90 families will have clean, running water 24-7 in their homes. Isn't that something to celebrate? And this has all been made possible because this community and its partners believe that Jesus offers life-giving water to everyone. And all those who drink of this water, just life in the kingdom, they'll never thirst anymore. So if I ask this community when I go down there this week, do you think Jesus is really good for the world? I bet you can guess how they would respond. But one day, everyone will see that Jesus is really good for the world. He's going to set all the wrongs of our world right. There will be no more pain, no more inequality, no more discrimination or anger or sadness or tears or pain or death. God's kingdom is going to rule in all of its fullness and all of its glory, and it will be unlike anything any of us could ever imagine. Because Jesus has changed the world, will transform the world, and is changing the world now. But his strategy is not what anyone expected because his strategy means that we have to be involved. Let me illustrate. In Jesus' day, a lot of the Roman world was, it was well, most of it was led here by Caesar. Caesar was the man in charge. He sat on the throne. And Jesus, and sorry, and the people of Jesus' day, his fellow Jews, were down here at the low end of the totem pole, and people like Herod and other Jewish leaders who sold out would oppress these people under the regime of Herod. And so as Jesus was born into this tough situation of oppression, the Jewish people saw this man is revolutionary. Let's see if we can get him to now overthrow Caesar, that he would unseat Caesar, and Jesus instead would sit on the throne. But Jesus' revolution was not a top-down movement. Instead, Jesus could have changed things this way, but instead he chose to live out an inside-out revolution. Let me try and draw it like this. Imagine here is an entire world, and what makes up the world? Countries. And what makes up countries? Institutions. What makes up institutions? Well, communities. And what makes up communities? 
families. And what makes up families? People, just individuals like you and me. And Jesus' invitation is to step into this life in the kingdom. And as you step into this life, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be a person who is filled with Christ's love. And as a result, this love is going to attract other people to the kingdom. And it's going to be spilling out Christ's love from, from the individuals to families, from families to communities, from communities to institutions, to institutions to countries, and to the whole world can get in on this incredible movement of God. It's a revolution of love, and it is an inside-out movement that starts with me and with you. T.S. Eliot, the 20th century poet, used to say that people want to create a system so good that they don't have to be good. But Jesus will never be as good for the world as he can be when we as people remain to be changed ourselves, when we remain unwilling. And why is that? Because the way Jesus wants to change the world is not by force in a top-down way, but by invitation, by invitation. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is available. So how do we get in on this? How do we step into the kingdom? Well, I think there are four primary ways that we can do that. The first is to see this remarkable new opportunity. Actually take a good look. Look in here and see what could and should be for our world. This is the way of Jesus. Come and see what it is. Then secondly, we actually have to try and step into this kingdom. We actually have to step into it, which is a little unnatural feeling. Stepping into the kingdom is not just like walking through a door that's just wide open for us. It's probably a lot more like climbing through a window. It feels kind of unnatural. If you've ever had to climb out of a window for some situation, you were probably somewhere you shouldn't have been. <laughs> and so you start to feel like there's, this is wrong. Something wells up and you're like, no, no, this can't be. But as you start to look through the window, you see there is more here. Now, let's just say entering the kingdom is like climbing through the window, a window in front of a lot of people in one place, and they're all watching you. At first, you might feel a little fear about it. This could go really wrong. My pants are a little more snug after Christmas, and what if I rip them in front of all these people? I would put the ripper in Dave Ripper for sure. <laughs> this thing's on wheels. What if this falls? What are people going to think of me? Is he utterly ridiculous for doing this? I could get hurt. I don't know what's gonna, what it's going to be like on the other side. That seems like the... Potential for harm far outweighs the potential for good. And this is what it's like for a lot of us when we want to step into the kingdom of God. Well, we have these fears that keep gripping us. What are people going to think? Wait, I might have to give that up? What? See, Jesus tells this other parable where he says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field, and you're the one who finds out where it is. And so you sell everything you have gladly because you know that the reward of this treasure far outweighs whatever you have to give up. But a lot of times we struggle to give that up because of our fear, because of what other people think. But eventually what happens is that we get so gripped by the vision of what could and should be, of the kingdom of how good it is, that we start to loosen the grip of our fears, of what other people think, of our own selfishness, and we decide to actually step through. Anyone want to see me step into the kingdom of God? All right. Here we go. 
let me just say, that was not very comfortable. <laughs> it didn't feel natural. But what happens when you actually come out on the other side? Well, sometimes there's like this fear of exhilaration. People clap. It's like maybe getting baptized. Or maybe it's the feeling you have when the Kansas City Chiefs lose. It's just this great feeling. But eventually that feeling recedes. And then we actually have to do the third thing, which is to work with Christ to put on the character and love of Jesus. That we actually change the way we think and act and feel so that our way of life looks more like his. That's when we'll be the most ourselves we can ever be the more we become like Jesus. So we become like that. And then it's an amazing thing. We start to have this better connection with God. We realize the kingdom is available everywhere and we live in it. But this is a real temptation for Christians just to stop right here. Because the fourth thing we need to do as far as stepping into the kingdom is that we actually need to step back into the darkness of our world with the love of Christ. It's not enough for us just to get to enjoy this. We can't just withdraw we can't remain indifferent because indifference to the means of the world, to the ways of the world, to the cries and the hurts of our world, indifference is what defeats love. And so we have to take what we've experienced here with God and we actually need to go through the tough work of climbing back through this window to meet the world's needs with the love of Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what entering this kingdom life is all about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. So as we close, let me invite you to repent, to change the way that you're thinking, the way that you're living, and enter into this new reality. Maybe you're someone who's just watched or heard this advertisement on the Sports Hub, and you really don't know Jesus that well or know much about him, I'd encourage you to take a good long look at the kingdom of God. Just start reading the Bible right where we left off today in Matthew 5. I'll tell you personally, in ninth grade, when I started finding out for who Jesus was myself, reading the scriptures, it's what changed me. It's what gave, gripped me with this compelling vision of what the world's meant to be like, who I'm meant to be like. So just start reading. Just keep looking in. Or maybe you're somebody who's kind of been doing one of these things where you kind of got like one foot in and one foot out. And you're kind of on the fence. You kind of want to follow Jesus, but all the things of the world just continue to draw you back. Your friends, your goals, your dreams, your, your wants, all these things. Maybe today the invitation is, hey, repent. This is no way to live. Like, this is not very comfortable right now. <laughs> repent. Take that full step in into the kingdom. Let go. Hold back. Don't hold back. I'm really glad I didn't get hurt here today, and just for the record. Maybe that's you, or maybe you're someone like this, that you are just so consumed with the things right in front of you, with these little devices, that you just miss the fact that this kingdom of God is just like right here next to you. It's, it's available, it's open, and it's the best thing you could ever find, and you're just so consumed with this. So today I would tell you, wake up, okay? Wake up. And then lastly, maybe you're someone who feels more comfortable crossing through and kind of hiding back here. You kind of like to just be with your Christian friends, your church, it feels safe, it's comfortable. But God right now might be stirring your heart to care for the needs of others besides yourself. And maybe you need to step right back through this window to love 
and to serve the world, to stop withdrawing and to engage. What might your next step be here today? So what do you think? Is Jesus really good for the world? I believe he's not part of the problem, but that he is the ultimate source of the solution. And not only is he really good for the world, but he believes that you can be really good for the world too. And so here's his invitation, my brothers and sisters. Repent. Change the way that you're thinking and acting. Review your life in in light of this remarkable new opportunity because the kingdom of heaven is available. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this most, this most wonderful invitation that we don't deserve. Thank you by Christ's mercy upon us that we can get in on this life even though we don't deserve it. Forgive us for how we've chosen to live for ourselves. We want to choose today to take a next step towards you. I pray for every person here who's maybe feeling that nudge, that pull in their heart, maybe right this moment, they want to step through that window. I pray, God, that you would give them the courage to do that. Help them to be so gripped by the glory of who you are, Jesus, the beauty of what you've done, that it makes letting go of anything we've been holding on to just seem easy. Let's just let us go sell everything so we can find that treasure that's right here. So, Lord, I pray for boldness for our folks. I pray for uh, uh, openness in our hearts that just as you've opened up the kingdom to us, we would open up our lives to those who need it most, who need you most. So Jesus, thank you so much for this invitation. May we live in it now, here and now, for your glory's sake and for the sake of the world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. Amen.